Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Multi-stage venture capital investment is something many managers inspire towards, and Mercia probably has the widest range of capital pools in the market. In today's episode, Paul Matic discusses how they manage these pools in practice, covering the pros and some of the challenges. We also talk about investing in the regions and how we might make that better. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonico.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today on the podcast, we are joined by Paul Matic, who is Head of Investor Relations at Mercia. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you, Brian. As usual, we'd like to get to know a little bit more about you. So how did you get involved in EIS fund management? Well, that's quite a story and it's quite a long one, which um, I suppose we've got the time to talk about briefly in this this context and the podcast. So originally I was as an academic at Oxford and doing my PhD and postdoctorate in um, cardiac pharmacology, so heart drugs. Yeah. which seems like a long time ago. And yeah, it was a great experience being being at Oxford and, and, and that environment, obviously cutting edge in various regards. But one thing I didn't expect when I went there was that I was very got very frustrated by the lab work. Often didn't work. So I was uh, got a bit frustrated, needed to find a, a, a vent. And that ended up being rowing, which uh, I think... <laughs> I noticed, you know, I'm sure you didn't see the direct relation to this, but um, I, I ended up rowing at a very high level, went to the Beijing Olympics and won the World Championships a couple of times, as you do. Then I, and I, I retired in, in 2012 from doing both kind of academics out and rowing as I got an injury in the run-up to my home Olympics, unfortunately. That's a shame. But um, at that point, I was looking for for kind of what, what was next, and I always found... Uh, I'd been an entrepreneur, had it set up my own business and importing rowing boats. So that was an area I knew well. And I went to work with an Oxford-based EIS fund. And afterwards, it was my first break into the area. I've always been interested in, in finance. And actually, I'd been on the SJP Academy for a number of months, but ended up going into, into fund management and then I moved across to, to Mercia in 2016, where I've been building out the EIS fund, and, and now we've got the VCT as well. Uh, can I ask a little bit about the Olympics? Because I'm not going to get many chances to ask speak to somebody who's been to the Olympics. How, what was that like? It, it was it was amazing. It was such an experience, and and within the context of my sporting career, which ranged from when did, when did we start? It started in it was 05, went through to 2012. So missed out, well, in fact, almost went to the 04 Olympics as well and, and missed out in 2012, which could have potentially gone to three Olympics, but um, didn't quite happen. So I just started rowing about two years before when the, the 04 and 08, I'll talk about that in a minute, but um, in 2012, 2012 was a real frustration to me. So mm-hmm. I um, was at the top of my sport kind of a year, 18 months before, and we, I won the 2010 World Champs and 2011 came third and second. And in 2012, I got an injury and then ended up just not not getting, not qualifying, but which was very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And especially because it was home Olympics. Yeah, and that, I can that, imagine. That, yeah. And my, my 
I'm not sure I should say this, but my crew came second in 2012, and I think I would have helped them get born better. So, but so the actual, the actual Beijing Olympics itself, where I went to a GB, um, where I was in the final, and um, I came fifth overall, which which is fantastic. But actually, for me at the time, that was an underperformance, and it might sound a weird statement, but the the year before we we won the world championships, and um, 2010 we also won. So. Uh, out of that 07 to 2010 period, we won two out of the four events, and the, the Olympics was not one of them. That was frustrating and disappointing, and a lot of it was down to, to teamwork. Um, our team just didn't gel that that day. That year, really, there was some very strong emotions, as you can imagine, under mm-hmm. that sort of pressure. Yeah. And, I mean, I mean, you've got that thing about it's always better to compete than to win, but. I get the impression that's not really true. You're where you are. You're really competitive. You're there to win. We were, uh, and, and we we won a lot of the that year's races as well. So we have we have three World Cups before the, the the World Championships or Olympics each year, and we won a couple of the World Cups. So we were were amongst the favourites, and it just I say ultimately it came to it's something which we'll probably get onto later. It came down to teamwork and, and management and, and actually personalities, and I think we ended up self-destructing and uh, that, that's on, on, on the biggest stage which it's still coming fifth is good but um, I say it's, it was a little bit of a disappointment that the result but the actual experience was absolutely amazing as you imagine China the bird's nest and, and uh, the eight it was a really special and, and a really big event and I think 2012 trying to emulate it but 08 was yeah something, something quite it's a massive step up from previous Olympics in terms of scale and investment. And they were seeding the clouds above us to get rid of the smoke, <laughs> uh, which is it's just they knocked down areas of the, of the Beijing city so that they didn't appear to be so run down. So, which is, they, they turned off industry for, uh, for months uh, beforehand. Months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. And um, that, that was kind of the, the, the Chinese aspect, but it's actual being part of a such a neat group of people met no quite a few of the cyclists through that route and um, they met various people as you, you can imagine you know, it was a, it's, a, it's a privilege and one of some of the proudest moments of my life well probably the second proudest was probably sitting on standing on top of the a podium and listening to the, the our national anthem that was really was very very important to me and uh, it's a strange experience and it seems like a long time ago but i think it has influenced who i am now and um i probably i was there before the competitive side but um yeah it's fantastic a great experience i really really recommend trying just focusing on one thing and seeing how good you can get mm-hmm. and that's kind of what i'm doing now so yes. <laughs> yes. so back to finance and venture capital maybe you can tell us a little bit about what mercia does Sure. So Mercia fundamentally is an is an early stage technology investor. So quite large, so about nine hundred million under management across different fund structures, and which I think we'll touch on later on, ranging from government money by the British Business Bank. We have um, also VCT EIS. We, we do some SEIS. And we also have our PLC that invests as well. So we've got a, a number of different funds that work together. Primarily in in the venture space, venture capital space, and um, certainly early stage investing across across the regions. Primarily, 
We, we, we do, to be clear, we do have a small private equity and debt fund as well, but they account for probably 150 million of the 900 million. So the, the vast majority of what we're doing is venture, is early stage technology investing. And we're, we're very good at it. So we've been doing it for a long time. I mean, 1982 was when we started originally. Uh-huh. And we've been using different pools of capital. So originally it was, say, some university spin out money. So actually from the universities, and, and then we've built it out. And we've had an EIS fund since February 2013. And the VCT joined us in 2019, but they're well established. And it's all it's all it's very much focused on regional companies. And I'm sure we'll touch on that later as well. The reason for that is, is entry pricing. So quite simply, we find there's a lot of money sloshing around in London chasing after a few companies which inflates the prices and, and there's some great tech companies in London but um, and the Southeast. We, we, we tend to focus outside there just so we can get the pricing right on entry, which means that we can try and get these high multiple returns what we have done recently and, and have and look forward to doing in the future. But um, that, that's the rationale for it. It's not it's not entirely altruistic. Um, there's the, there's the, it's, there is an element of the government wants us to invest in these regions, so that's fine. But there are some fantastic technology companies we, we see outside and in the regions, and they deserve to be supported through their growth phase. Do you, th- do you think there's a real problem for the industry? I mean, we can all see statistics where, depending on how you measure it, half or two-thirds of stuff happens in London, southeast, and the, the regions struggling might be an exaggeration, but clearly not getting the fair share. Everybody I speak to who invests in the region says the same thing about you, about how the pricing's better, the competition's less, the opportunity's there. I'm, I'm still a bit of a loss at sometimes to figure out why why haven't we solved this or why can't we solve this? Well, I think mostly it's scale. So the EIS market to be clear, it is not particularly big compared to the institutional scale mm-hmm. of these and um, just kind of grown up, well, mutual funds, etc. So the, the sort of people we come across in the IS podcast um, will be will be maybe managing 10, 50, 100 million, maybe, and maybe deploying 5, 10 million into the regions. But when we're talking about the kind of Southeast VCs and that they'll be deploying hundreds of millions into into, into mega deals in London the, and it, it just it's the scale so there's rhetoric is one thing from small fund managers but actually being able to actually deploy at scale in the regions it's just it's just really hard it's very easy to build kind of good tight networks in London because everyone's in the same sort of place goes to mm-hmm. the same place it speaks to the same people but to do it in the regions requires a really big team because yeah, you've got Birmingham, but the, Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, or Edinburgh, as you well know, they've all got great uh, kind of hubs and of kind of technology companies growing, but it's really hard to build multiple networks at the same time. For that, you need to be at scale and you need to have a lot of people on the ground and you need to have very strong networks. And, and that's something which we have built over 30 years, 30, 40 years, effectively. It's not something you can easily replicate. We're, we're 
we're deploying 100 million pounds a year into the regions, which is not insignificant at all, but there's a lot more scope. We, we, we think we could do 250 million per year into regional companies without changing our strategy. And at that point, then, yeah, perhaps we are starting to, to move the dial slightly in the, the levelling up agenda, maybe more effective. Um, and obviously, it's a conservative uh, initiative. But um, I think that's something which will, it's not any, it's not political. I think it's part of something that the country needs it to actually fulfil its potential. Mm-hmm. There are there are some great companies in the southeast and in London, and there's no denying that. But I don't know if anyone, I'm sure you might have heard me talk about it before, but we've coined the term, or I've coined the term, the geographical arbitrage. So you build, build companies in the regions, and then when you get through Series A, Series B, move them to London. And they get the benefit of the pricing of London, of the, the lots of capital in London, but you also get the, the benefit of starting a company and scaling it in the first five years of the growth of the company outside of London and Midlands and North are pretty much deprived of early stage capital. And it's horrible to say, but it's it's not inaccurate. So it's not sure that they're the most recent data, but um, for a couple of years ago, the BBB data set said, I think it was certainly, I think 60% of money went into London and, and the surrounds where there was 20% of the high growth companies. So three times the amount of money to the number of companies. Whereas in the West Midlands, there was still 8% of high growth companies in the country. So a little less than half. But rather than 60% of the capital, which is going to London, there was 1%. So it's this... That's it, just it, wrong. Well, yeah, it, it is. But this is part of the reason why the British Business Bank money and the government money is being focused in the regions is that there's these potential companies which could really help UK PLC to grow, which are have not got enough funding. And why, why is that? It's because lazy investors can't be bothered to get on the train or actually jump on a Zoom. I think, and I think that's something which we, we've seen for years, decades, and that we've always been focused on, partly benefiting from for, for our clients, but, but also kind of delivering on the mandates of the government because they can see this as an issue. Yeah. You mentioned about jumping on Zoom. Obviously, given what's happened over the last 12 months, do you think that's going to be positive for the region in terms of if you're investing in London now, matters less whether it's across the river or or 200 miles away? To a certain extent, yes. But there is the element of you need to meet the management teams, you need to spend time with them, you need to look them in the eye and uh, be able to assess their, the value of their experiences and, and see if, yeah, if they're looking shifty or their body language is a bit off for when you ask them certain difficult questions. And that's not only in the due diligence phase. Every month, the board reports, the board meetings, well, I, I hope most the IS managers are on the boards of their portfolio companies. You know, we are on every board initially. And having those difficult questions answered effectively over Zoom, it, it can be done, but is it as effective? I don't think so, which then means that you do need to be have some co-location with the, the portfolio companies to a certain extent. And that's why you see Big investment managers, you'll see that the directors fly across from the US into the UK or vice versa to, to, to go to the boards. It's not it's not just a historic facet of 
a business. It, it is actually face to face. Is 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 more about is it's higher quality than than over Zoom or Teams. Um, those margins are small, but if you've got a big investment into a company, I think you'll always want to be at the board rather than on the Zoom or Teams. That's uh, we are seeing more regional investment from uh, some central and say some London-based funds. So we've done an awful lot recently with British Growth Fund. So it's not actually an EIS fund, it's a late stage funder, but their mandate is from the big banks, which will understand. Then a lot of London-based Series B, Series C investments writing 25K, 25 million pound checks and such. One thing, part of their other mandate is to, to invest regionally into smaller businesses. They, they've been looking around and realizing they need a, a, a syndicate partner and they, they looked at our portfolio and said, wow, there's lots of companies here we want to be involved with, and, and we're doing an awful lot with them at the moment. Also, we're doing we're syndicating across the board with various EIS managers, but I think that's partly we are we do go in early, so we see pre-series A, and if other funders are coming in slightly later, if we're in there, they, they know that there's the board structure is good, and they can assess the opportunities themselves. But I think we will see more and more syndication uh, between the London-based EIS houses and the more regional funds. That sounds like a good thing. So Mercia itself is interesting in that it's really a multi-stage investor. I think uh, of all the people in the EIS sector, you probably have the most pools of capital. And I think while there's some of the people who aspire a little bit to multi-stage investing, you're probably the poster child almost for actually being able to do it. So maybe we could start, you've already alluded to several tools of capital. Can we maybe just sort of get an idea of the sort of full, fuller list? Yeah, so there's various different ways we can cut this. And well, the easiest, probably most obvious way is to talk about different stages. Mm-hmm. So we have, I'm talking about venture capital here, right? and, and early stage technology companies rather than, putting away the, the private equity debt funds. They do sometimes interact. So debt and our VCT have invested alongside each other occasionally. Our PLC sometimes might invest into PE companies. But as the core of what we talked about earlier on, we have multiple funds. So in stages, so we've got kind of called the proof of concept. And you understand that it's kind of pathfinder seed stage where there is an idea probably that maybe some even pre-revenue, in some cases, it's pre-incorporation. And that, that's quite a scary situation for some investors. But um, I'll explain the different pools of capital around that. And then we have the, the, the kind of Series A capital where our EIS primarily sits. There is some overlap. We do do some C, we do do some Series B, I would suggest. And pre-Series A is where the our EIS tends to fit. BCT is probably Series A, Series B. And um, a bit more expansion capital, and they can write checks from say one to five million. And in, in many ways, that after that we have our PLC, they, they can write up to again five million pound checks. But they also they, they can invest early, so they have his, historically done some seed investment. But uh, normally they're looking at Series A plus. Mm-hmm. So so they've got different stages but proof of concepts definitely the, the, the earliest stage we even have a 
within proof of concept, we, we also we even have something which is just a, a grant where we just give grants out and even we occasionally done pathfinders where we give 50k from our define our marketing budget and say go and see if this is going to work it's it's that's very much not commercial it's just a little bit of money to see if that idea is going to work we have Mercer Fund One, which is a university spin-out fund. It's not. It's it's the LPs from that are the the universities themselves across Birmingham, Warwick, and, and uh, yeah. So there's, there's a few university partnerships there who have given us. It was nine million pounds originally, and it was actually one of the challenger funds, which is has been very successful under our management. I would probably also put that there's the Midlands Engine Proof of Concept Fund. So that's a, a British business bank fund, which can go early stage, can do 50, 100K, but it can go up to, say, 750. And we do the IS fund does quite a lot alongside them because we also have CDIS. So we don't raise much of that nowadays. We're probably doing 200, maybe 300K a year, which is, is not, not a substantial amount, really. So we do two or three, maybe four or five SEIS companies a year as well. So that, that's the proof of concept pool. And so the, the, the investors in, include so universities, the, the government and the EIS funds via, via the SEIS. That's quite distinct. And when you move on a bit further, we will still have going to, towards Series A, you, you can still have some of the Midlands Engine Proof of Concept, and we also then start getting to the, the, the bulk of the EIS fund. But alongside that, we also have the other regional funds, which are obviously geographically limited. So there's the Northern Powerhouse, you understand what that is, and um, the Northeast Venture Fund, so that's around Newcastle areas. But they, they, they have some ability to invest outside the regions, but limited so there's a geographical aspect to those as well as a, a stage so going across the eis northern powerhouse and northeast venture fund they can technically do from 250 up to 2 million that sort of range the later stage from that probably going after series a you'll see the vct be has got a lot of power around there vct can go a little bit earlier so it can go down to, to series A and write million pound checks, but it tends to be later stage and, and historically it's got a quite a few assets, the pre-2016 assets, the MBOs, which um, including music back magpie, which we um, put on to market last week before last. And then so they can write to fit five million pound checks. And then that's probably the, the, the main later stage fund uh, and then the, alongside the PLC which again can write checks from 500k up to 5 million and and that, that, that's from the shareholders so the, the, the across across the different funds so the, the underlying shareholders are for the VCT and the IR, for the VCT and PLC obviously they're, they're, they're aim listed trusts which invest balance sheet effectively both of them Whereas the EIS is a, is a portfolio, effectively, of EIS companies where underlying investors as per EIS normal. So it, it is quite complicated, but it does mean one of the benefits is that we can support a company from idea stage. And, and to be clear, we do do that occasionally, maybe once, once, twice, maybe more a year. And maybe EIS fund, which 
helps a company. So, for example, there's a company called Axis Spine in our EIS portfolio, and it's, it's quite a big position. We, we know the space really well. So it's a medical device that helps basically people with really bad backs stand up more straight. So looking at more doses, and it's quite a, a unique proposition. And the reason we know that space very well is that um, the fund principal for the IS was used to sell medical devices and, and spinal implants. So we really do know that very well. And we found a bit of IP, which we, we from our just being in the industry, we found a CEA because we knew him already. And we said, here's some technology, you're the management team, give me a bit of cash, set up a company, see where you can take it. So we funded that company from right at the start and it's grown, it's, this product is now being implanted into humans in the US, so it's gone through FDA trials. That's when we funded it multiple times from EIS, hasn't got any other funding in as far as I can't think there's got any other, re, any, any other funding in from other Mercy groups yet, but it could go onto the VCT or the PLC. The, the other proof of concept funds didn't didn't get involved, don't think. That's the kind of capability we have and we can so we can go proof of concept. Say so we some of our companies will be yeah, hundreds of millions definitely at that stage. But at the later stage we we always bring in other syndicators. So one of the things we're we're very keen to do is, and I'm sure we'll come on to this later on, is pricing conflict. And that's something which we're aware of because of multiple pools of capital. And to partly to satisfy that, we 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 want external investors to, to be in alongside us to validate the pricing. So that's something which we we, we always look for to it's, it's it's hard to set the price as we'll get on to I'm sure internally. But um, if we have an external party validating the pricing, if not leading, then that kind of reduces the, the internal conflicts. Yeah, I mean, the first challenge I think I wanted to think about was, I can see the advantages of supporting a company all through, but how do you get that follow-on decision right in that there's that danger of a sunk cost? It's like, well, well we've, we've supported this company for three rounds. Of course, we're going to support it for the fourth. But you probably don't want to get into that sort of thought process. How do you get that discipline in your process? Well, partly part it's just due to being a large, experienced institutional investor. We, we have a very strict process in terms of new money coming in versus old. And the sunk cost, as, as you described it, that's not relevant for new investors. It's totally irrelevant, in fact. And in fact, there's a, there's a conflict there, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about. So effectively, if there's different funds, then you have different people representing the different funds internally. So they have a the independent process and analysis of the opportunity. They come to the pricing agreement independently. The proposals go to the investment committee, which has, I think, probably about 100 years of experience in the, in the industry and meets twice a week to try and get through all our deal flow. So it, it, we're doing things at scale with experience. We've done it for a long time, but you're quite right. that there, there is a potential conflict with new money versus old. But I would also like to kind of flip it around on its head. And if it goes well, it means that you get exposure for at a later stage to great companies. For example, I think in Axis, we have, I think, six or seven different funding rounds into it. And the last couple have had external investors in and validating that pricing. And it's been incremental growth. It's now 10 million valuation, but we started it was like one and a half million or something. 
So, but we've we've had those pricing pricing points validated, and actually there's still substantial growth potential in the company. And the pricing entry pricing is really key important to us, whether it's new investors or old, and, and it, it is a conflict. And I'm very aware of that. Any new capital which an invest a company is taking is diluting existing investors. So even if it's, if it's the, the same price, then that's a, actually an effective down round. So you, you've got to think about the percentage holding of the company. So it, it is a difficult thing to manage, and, and we try to validate it from commercial proof points. But ultimately, it's down to negotiation between the, the company and the investors. So it's the company that decides the pricing. If they're going to accept funding, then they want this price. And we just try and make it make sure it's rational. Yeah. You alluded to this challenge about getting the price right. And clearly, if you're the only one doing it, it's not quite marking your own homework because the management still have to take a decision. But you talked about getting this third idea of third parties in to sort of validate that. How early or where, what's the right point, do you think, to start getting third parties involved? Because presumably you're, the first two or three rounds, if they're quite small, you don't really want to be sharing those. No, probably not. We, we often bring in angels. And, and one thing which, again, we might go on to this, is the non-executive director network. When we get onto a board, we look to bring in great people to that board. And they often invest. So we were often putting our EIS capital alongside angels and who are, I wouldn't call them normal angels, they're more knowledge of directors and they're their chairmen and, and, and they're people who have massive industry experience, which helps us validate that pricing. And, and yeah, the, the, the first round or two might well be done primarily by us because we do go in early. To be clear, we don't always go in at the seed stage. Mm-hmm. We normally go in a pre-series A, I would suggest. So there might be some other institutional investors in at that point. So, but we, the IS can go in from C to, to series A, but um, and it's probably progressively doing more series A than it is doing C. It, it, it is difficult. And one of the things that we do do, if, if it's only Mercer investing at the early stage, we, we wouldn't change. We, the price of the shares might go up, but our, our valuation of our, our holding value would not. So... If we're not getting it externally validated, we would not change our holding price, which in some cases can look a bit odd in terms of valuation because the new investors have a, a down round. Well, they buy at one price and then it's marked down. It's on a case-by-case basis and, and we're very prudent on our, our, our valuation. Option. It's quite interesting. So for the last, we've done quite a few exits as I, um, recently, but all of them have been around twice the holding value. So... And I think we tend we tend to hold our our companies below the actual actual enterprise values, partly because we're we're conservative. And but I think in due course, when the companies get realised or they have a, a, a externally validated round, then you would see the pricing come up quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, I know you've had a good run of those, so hopefully you'll get more of those. Thinking about the follow-ons more. One of the challenges, it seems to me, for a multi-stage manager is that there's almost this external expectation that you will follow on. And there's a danger that if you don't follow on, that's taken as a black mark against the company because they're like, well, mercy, don't like them. How do you sort of perceive that and manage that risk? To be honest, 
it's something which is there and we can't really change. Um, if, if we stop funding the company, it's for a good reason. And in, in our opinion, to be clear, we do it quite often. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And it often does raise from other sources. And, and I hate to say it, but it often raises from crowdfunding. But we, we tend to see that some of the companies which we've stopped funding go across to crowdfunding. And, and, and that's what tends to happen. And they still might be successful, but we would get diluted down. And having an option for success is much better than having too big to fail situation. Again, at this scale, we cannot afford to emotionally follow a, a company and fund it. In fact, we call it going native. So if, if an investment manager is just so emotionally engaged with the company that he can't see the, the, the faults with it, then he needs to get off that company. We need to move him onto a different company and put a different board representative on. And that's something which we are pretty, yeah, we're pretty clear on. It, it, it is a black mark. We, we still supply other aspects of non-funding, so we still maintain our board position. We would provide our network, our advice, and we try and extend, help them externally syndicate as well. Yeah, and, and if we stop funding, yes, it, it is sometimes a, a big issue for the company because we are very supportive for companies that are doing well. But there, there's the the targets. If they achieve the targets, which are they set and they're normally very ambitious, then we we would expect to fund. And even if it's not from the same pool of capital, it might be from a different pool of capital. But if they if they get nowhere near their targets, then we probably won't fund them again. Which we might give them. Yeah, we probably won't fund them again. Or there's the grey area where it's it's not quite hit their targets and. Of course, in some situations, there's valid COVID is a valid reason for those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So, and then we, we might fund it if we really like the company, but it probably will be at a down round. Um, in, in one of our companies, which is a is a uh, in a travel space, it just tracks people transiting across airports, which is a really useful bit of technology. But airports shut down for a year, and surprise, we still really like the technology. Their revenues crashed. As everyone, because they got they just negotiated a pay per transit uh, agreement with Star Alliance, and um, so it's one of those situations where, well, well, fortunate and unfortunate. It's a good deal, probably. It was was already the right thing to do at the time because uh, this was it was a risk which was no one really saw coming. So, but we we funded them again at a fifty percent discount, and it was painful for our old investors, but. It was the right thing to do to our new investors because we still really like technology. We don't tend to see many restarts in our portfolio. We tend to fund, 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 and then stop, or just keep funding into exit and um, across the different pools of capital. But there, there have been there's, there's some valid reasons for having restarts. Just just the scale we're at, we've got 17 EIS companies running, and uh, we can't afford just a prop up one or two because we like them. Or even with access, as we, we said, and we have some serious discussions about we're going to fund it again and, and what value is the, is the pricing right? Is it Should it be a down round? Every time that, that, that there's, there's any setbacks, it's a constructive, grown-up conversation because, because it needs to be for the interest of the clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. So you earlier mentioned about ownership percentages. Now, this is something that when I listen to sort of Silicon Valley people I hear some people have very strong views on ownership percentages, but it's not something I see our sort of industry focusing on. What, what's your kind of thoughts on that? 
Sure. So just due to the model which we invest in, we, we tend to end up with quite big positions in companies because we drip money over time. And we could we could be with the company for five, ten years in some cases. And and five to seven is what we target for our EIS investors to exit. And that might include four or five rounds of EIS capital if it's doing well and on a certain growth trajectory. And each time we'll, we'll be taking probably five to ten percent of the equity, probably even more in some cases. So there are various cases which we have built up. Certainly, you only get ten percent of a company in the first investment, depending on what stage it is and what how much how big the check is that we're rising. We we always want to get a board seat, which is an important consideration. From there, across multiple rounds of funding, often build out 20, 25, 30% equity positions. And in some cases, it's considerably more. So again, in, in, in Axis, we're around 50%, which is below it now. And in some other, across the group, in some other companies, where we've been 60, 70% of the, the equity position. And that, that's unusual. And normally due to the PLC investing repeatedly for long periods, but I would expect 30 to 40% is, is normally the, the max you'll see from our EIS, the group percentage. But it just depends on, on that individual company's trajectory, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've got no thoughts about, okay, we don't want to go above this unless we really have to, or, we, or we've got, well, we want a minimum amount of the company, which is the sort of two ends of the scale. Well, we certainly want the minimum amount to, to get a board seat. So 10% is, is realistic. But if you think about it, over the period of the company, yeah, if there's follow-on funding, we don't participate, we'll get diluted down. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, th- I think we're in it for the long term with the companies. We, we build long-term relationships. We're not, some say US VCs, they will say we want to get 10, 20% of the company to think about a one-off event. So they come in a Series B, write a, 25 million pound check to get 10 percent of the company and then expect the company to to not need further funding which is fine but for that that's when the company's already beyond our scope probably so that so you can get 25 million pound check at 10 percent says 250 million pound company which is not something what we've got one or two of we're looking for looking to develop into those after five five years so it's that that's it's a different stage you're talking about in some ways. The, the U.S. market's very different. It's yeah, it's very highly priced, and there's there's some repeat entrepreneurs that are doing very well. But there's also an to be clear, there's an awful lot of pension money going into to VC in the U.S., which we just haven't got. Yeah, it's it's something we. Well, not just we, but a lot of people, I think around the patient capital review, that was one of the topics that was up for discussion. And I haven't seen any movement on that, which is a shame. Well, I hate to bring up that name, but uh, there's a certain fund manager, which I think probably seriously harmed it by his big crash in the uh, Woodford. He was an early stage investor with theoretically patient capital, which obviously has gone quite badly. So I think that did some damage to that movement, but I think it will happen because the, the, the timeline between early stage investing and pension capital is is perfect. They're both medium to long term, and uh, on that kind of time scale, uh, early stage investing can really pay off, and the, the IRRs generated are, are very strong. So we, we think fifteen to 
20, 25% IRR is quite realistic for what we're doing. And the later you go, the, the lower it is. So if you can come early and be patient, then you can get a really good return in the medium term. It's, uh, so the other t- criticism, which I, th- I think sometimes self-serving of multi-stage venture capital, is the idea of specialism where I think you've got people who kind of specialise at C-stage investing or specialise at scale-up because they feel the skills that they are bringing sort of really match that stage of investment. How do you think about that with Immersive? Because if you're you're funding across different stages, do you change people around? How how do you think about that? Interesting question. It probably relates to the pools of capital again because we we do have different personnel across the different funds and they have different skill sets so there are some very early stage investors which can do well at that point and some late stage investors and they look for different things but there is always one common theme of the management team and that is the biggest reason for companies to fail or succeed and that's an area which we we have we invest heavily into but fundamentally you do need the companies needs to do different things at different stages, but we have the ability. We've been there through all of the stages of various companies and help. We seeded a company and it grew to 1.8 billion. So we were on the board during that period. So, And would that be the same board person or would you sort of say, okay, we've got someone from the EIS fund now and then the VCT investors, that it changes to someone from the VCT or whatever? Well, yeah, it depends on which 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 funds participating. In, in that situation, it was our, our CIO Julian Vickers was on Blue Prism board from seeding it through to, to aim listing in 2016, and then played a role until 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can bring in different people and swap people around as per our agreement with the companies. But what we tend to do is just be very collaborative, and we we always looking for best practice and there's a lot of experience with the group we've sold hundreds of companies we've grown many uh, thousands probably from very small to quite substantial so that we have every other week we have these investment team meetings for half a day and just sharing best practice and examples and so people know who to speak to and if they have a specific problem and it's quite an open kind of structure at mercy where Anybody with the right experience can talk to anybody. That the CEO, the CIO, are always looking from for advice from other people with specific knowledge. So the, that's about stages you're talking about. But actually, in many ways, I think sectors is is a, a bigger specialism. Rather, mm-hmm. I haven't seen that many companies which are specific stage focus, but sector focus is a different thing. And and that's where sector specific knowledge comes in. That that can be very valuable, and, and that's something which we, we have in some areas. But we, we are agnostic in our in the sectors we invest in. But we we end up doing quite a lot in, in healthcare um, and life sciences. But and also that's probably our main specialism. But obviously everyone does software. It describes almost everything. So software is eating the world, as somebody said. Well, I think healthcare is actually on, on, a, on a big kick at the moment post-COVID. I think you'll see that over the next decade. I think it's, you're right. Yeah. So I think I think healthcare is having a go at software for the for the, the short term and well medium term. But we'll see. Software is an incremental gains, isn't it, really? Whereas healthcare can be step changes. So and I think that's that's the point you have a 
kind of a incremental growth within software, both in each individual company, the revenues incrementally grows. They win another small client. Whereas within healthcare, it can be a step change and suddenly there can be a, a multi-billion pound company from nothing because it's kind of sorting out COVID or whatever, or telehealth or all sorts of different things. And that's one of the reasons we we, we are agnostic, but and they also have different profiles, which, which help. But as I said, I think sector specialism is much more valuable than stage specialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'd like now to move on to our standard questions. So we'll throw these at you and get your thoughts on them. So what, what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you have made and why? Let's try and work out which one we can talk about. But uh, yeah, we, we made making a lot of rest investments over the, uh, the end of March, as you'll imagine. So I think probably the the the, the one which we is a, a decent size round, um, say into a company called Invisius. So, so things are say a five million pound round. It's in a renal technology. So basically, when people have dialysis, they they often have a cardiovascular event in response to the blood going through the tubing. And this thing uses a, a really cool technology from a bacteria which effectively coats the tubing. And so you don't have these cardiovascular events. And it basically is a, they call it an invisibility cloak, which is a little bit, bit of a strange concept for, um, I'd say. But yeah, we, we invested alongside various other institutional investors and we've been putting about. 900k in the end to that company so it's a decent size investment for us and it's a space which there hasn't really been any innovation in for 25 years and it's it's working with various industry participants as well it was a university spin out which we supported from very early stage helped it spin out and then we've been like helping it grow over the last few years we expect it to be Acquired at a, at a at a reasonably early stage because it is such such a big innovation in, in, a, in a big space. So we're, we're not necessarily looking to get its big revenue, which is an interesting concept because we we think it'll probably get sold well before getting to substantial revenue. I think it's going through the proof points, going through various different st- stages of study. When it gets into to, into into man, it will kind of have a seriously big impact upon people undergoing dialysis, which is exactly the sort of thing which we we like looking at. It's, it's very niche, but it's an area which we've got some expertise in. Yeah, I mean, I mean, dialysis is an area that's not quite exploded over the last few years, but it's, it, 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 I think it's an area that's had a lot of growth in terms of the technology's got become more accessible, and the rise of things like diabetes is just becoming more needed. Yeah. And I'd probably say that's one of the companies which I don't talk about all that much either, because there's lots of great things we're doing in, in portfolio companies, and there's not necessarily recent investments, but um, we have a, quite a lot of COVID technology, which you can imagine is uh, being quite poignant. Yes, you, you, something you get mixed feelings about, I imagine, because in a way, economically, it's fantastic, but you kind of, on the, on the background, you sort of think, well, I wish in a way we didn't actually need it. Yeah. We were in those spaces before COVID was a thing, so it's more of a, a long-term strategy which we've been we've been developing in terms of diagnostics and, and devices. That uh, I think we've been investing into to healthcare in this space for for decades. And as we, as you were saying earlier on, software eating the world, but I think healthcare is coming back. 
So in the classic VC triumvirate of market program management, we all know they're important, but which one do you think is the most important for your investments? Uh, I think every time it's management. Like, you won't get anywhere without a good management team, even if it's the, the best product in the world. It, we see a lot of people who are, a lot of entrepreneurs, very enthusiastic, but, but just don't know how to grow a company. And when we try and, we try and help them in that process and um, give them advice, but some of them are a bit stubborn and don't take the advice. And uh, we also see quite a few academic founders and they can vary. Some of them can be very good and some of them can be the, the crazy professor who, who doesn't really care about actual commercialization, just about academic. And, and each of these got different challenges. So we, we do like to back entrepreneurs who maybe maybe failed as well that, that, that's fine with us but sector specific experts with a commercial knowledge I, I can't get beyond saying management that obviously the, the, the product market product market fit is really important but um everything's proven by revenue but without the right management team you won't get to the revenue so tell us about the time you failed and what you learned from it again I'm not so personally, I'm pretty talking about Mercia rather than me. But, uh, <laughs> we'll take it uh, either. Well, I think I already talked about the, the, my failure at the start of this episode about the Olympics. But anyway, again, it probably refers back to the previous question around what's the most important thing. And management is, is as I said before, um, there, was, there was a company called Wave, which we invested in an ad tech company about five, six years ago, five years ago. And it was doing pretty well. And had, it was... 60, 70K revenue um, per month. So growing a decent size and, and kind of starting to dominate the, the UK space they were in. Against our advice and strong advice, they decided to, to look at the US. And so they, they spent a lot of time over in the US. The CEO moved over there for, for I think three months and um, tried to break that market, which as you can imagine for a small UK tech company was not successful. And whilst he was away from the UK, their revenues kind of faltered in the UK and we were backing them and repeatedly, but then this this happened and their revenues reduced. And yeah, it, it was it all went quite wrong quite quickly. And um, the, the, the company ended up failing reasonably soon after we put a small amount of money in, but um, and partly because the round that we were, were creating because the, the kind of investor lost confidence in the CEO, which is fair enough. The only reason the company ever fails is lack of funding. And they were burning quite a lot of money, but also they were, their revenue was increasing quite quickly, but it hadn't got to the point of break even. So the, the CEO was just a bit stubborn, didn't listen, didn't take advice. And actually, retrospectively, we, we found out there was some undisclosed debt as well, which is a real no-no from, from a, a governance perspective, from, from a management team. So, yeah, I think there just seemed to be a point where everything was going well, and then suddenly ambition overtook the, the management team. They didn't listen, and they took they, they were being irresponsible. So, so perhaps, as we referred to earlier on, that there's the right CEO for the early stage and then you might need to change whether it's the investment manager from Mercia on the board or whether it's the change of management team as the company grows through its stages. So that, that was was a difficult experience actually because we had, a, 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 I think, th three rounds of EIS in there, which um, did hurt some of our investors. 
Yes, in, in fact, sadly, failure is an, almost a necessary part of this business. So the EIS and VCC industry that we work in is great, but it's not perfect. Is there anything you would like to change about it? Yes, I, I think we referred to this earlier on, and I'm not sure whether it's EIS, VCT, or whether it's broader than that, but I, I would like to see pension capital coming into the space and at this sort of stage. And, and I think I think we progressively will see that, that there's a very big pension market out there, which is the investors are starting to get maxed out on their lifetime allowance and or annual allowances. And I think you will progressively see that there is more money coming into EIS and BCT, hopefully. I think that, that is the direction it's going. The government seems to be very supportive still, but I would actually probably not change too much with the IS and VCT and just hope or encourage somehow money to come into it from from pension space. Because I think it's, a, as we talked about before, the timelines are well aligned. Uh, and I think we, we can actually make a big impact on UK PLC. The, the, the growth, especially in regional companies, can really enhance where we get to with our with our um, kind of the, the, the national wealth over the next 10 years. But um, how that happens is a different question. Well, yes, yeah, so that, that was the question that was at the back of my mind about it's one of these things that's nice in theory, but no one seems to come, come up with a convincing way of persuading them to do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I think that, uh, some people have seen some regular kind of like a monthly subscriptions to EIS and VCT, and there are a few of them out there which kind of parallel you know, the pension contributions, but um, it just seems a long way, I hate to say it, but it still seems like a bit of a niche market compared to the, the pension industry. So just thinking about it, EIS and VCT together are probably two and a half billion or something like that, and, and that's the, the same amount as some uh, wealth managers put into pensions in the first quarter of the year. Mm-hmm. I, th- I, th- I was doing some arithmetic on last year, and I think there was 350 million went to EIS funds, I've been told, and probably about twice in the VCT. So you got about a billion going into the, into the venture capital industry, and wow. there was 30 billion went into retail mutual funds in yeah. 2020. Well, you you are missing a big chunk of the EIS there because there there is a lot of single company of friends and family and yeah. family this money, which it's it's normally consistently around. Okay, one, it's one another eight. billion. Yeah, plus, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that that is part of the the, the problem. We we, we yeah, say there's nothing to change in the EIS, but um, I think we 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 need to to recognise the the whole of the market rather than just the funds, and um, it, it's it's a big market and. The friends and family round, increasingly both the, the, the crowdfunding, which I think needs to be more professionalised. Okay. So lockdown has been fantastic for my reading and my to-read list are depleting. Anything out there you like and would recommend to people? I, I have to say, I, I haven't done a lot of reading personally. Well, it's either work or family with me. That's something which is my problem more than anything else. But um, I have I've read one interesting book recently, which was a bit of a mind bender called The, the Time Tra- the Time Traveller's Wife, which is uh, was, was quite interesting trying to work your brain around where this person was in, in the timeline, which I quite enjoyed, actually. But um, I'm a, an occasional slow reader rather than uh, an avid reader. I used to be an avid reader when I had more time, but um, uh, I haven't read much recently. But I think I've been 
focusing more on family and um, doing some work as well. Yeah, sadly, we all have to do a little bit of that at some point. So what do you wish you knew when you started with Mercier that you know now? I think probably how long it takes to get good exits. I think that, that I'd assumed that it was going to be a more rapid progress from looking at the portfolio where it was then to where we are now. And it's been four years, almost five years since I've been here. And there's been some exits, but they've kind of come in a flurry recently. Everything seems to take longer than expected. I think I need to be more patient. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. I, th- I, th- I think the industry as a whole is learning that at the moment. I think there have been some unrealistic expectations out there. Well, I think post the, the solar panels and all that, good straight bad stuff, I think the, the, world, the real world of venture capital and early stage tech investing is, is, is new to a lot of people. But actually, when it works well, I think it's going to be, when it's mature, I think we'll see some really consistent returns across the industry. And I think at that point, it will it will grow and it, perhaps it will take that mantle of um, supporting pensions. But um, the, the timeline is sometimes a challenge. But uh, I think we, there are initiatives out there to, to kind of tidy things up as well. Yeah, excellent. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Mercia, where should they go? Probably the easiest way is to come and have a Zoom with me. I'm, I'm always available, but uh, the, the, the other obvious place would be the website, so mercia.co.uk backslash EIS. It's, our website is quite a big beast in terms of, of the different funds, so uh, it, it is in there somewhere, but so the EIS pages are not the most obvious, which I am trying to rectify. <laughs> Excellent. Great. So thank you very much for that, Paul. That's been a really interesting insight into sort of the multi-stage sort of thing, which I haven't really looked at properly. Thank you. No problem at all. Great to be here. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.